Content warning for today's episode, there will be discussion of the Holocaust and child death. Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Sophie's Choice. Sophie is the survivor of Nazi concentration camps who has found a reason to live with Nathan, a sparkling, if unsteady, American Jew obsessed with the Holocaust. David finally got me to watch a Holocaust movie for this show. And wow, is it a weird one. It is a weird one. This is a weird movie. This is a romance novel masquerading as a a deep-seated Holocaust story. I'm gonna be real. think that's unfair (laughs) that this is based on a novel sure i mean it it is this is not an actual story Mm -hmm. and without having read the novel i can't really claim too much but it really feels like the most impactful part of this story is shoehorned in (laughs) so wine the title is annoying it's just annoying and then the framework for the story that they're ultimately trying to tell is garbage. <laughs> like hot, hot garbage. And it is being performed beautifully by some amazing people that we do genuinely like. But this is no good. <laughs> I mean, history has also proven that that's what stood up from this movie. For sure. Like nobody talks about this movie in glowing terms of what a great movie it is. Everybody talks about it in, wow, what amazing acting. Sure, and that's fine, and that is absolutely warranted. Because this is a movie that is just all acting all the time, because there's almost no real good story or script involved here. Yeah. It's hard to know where this starts with it being too much of a pulpy trash novel to really make any sense. Mm Mm-hmm. And where it might be that the adaptation is done so poorly in terms of plot structure. Mm. I don't think it does a terrible job of characters Mm -hmm. other than the justification it gives for the characters acting the way they do. Yeah, it's very bizarre. Like, if you told me that these three people were going to have, you know... Nathan's just going to be an incredibly volatile man because it's the 1940s and he has a volatile personality. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we're never going to know what might be going on with him other than he's just volatile. Sure. And then you have Stingo and you have Sophie who are both dealing with, you know, Stingo's dealing with the wide eyed nature of Brooklyn while also dealing with reckoning with his own past and his own ideas. And Sophie's lived through this horror show of trauma Mm -hmm. that at the core is awesome there's nothing wrong with those core characters sure and i don't even think the movie does a bad job at getting at the root of those characters but the plot justification from all angles makes no fucking sense it it really truly doesn't and then we pull out of some of the most harrowing scenes in the film, not the most, which is the one everyone remembers, mm-hmm. but we pull out of these scenes and then we're immediately thrust into the most bonkers soap opera plot immediately after. Well, like also like giving the impression that like they're a thruffle, like it's weird. 
I would I would have respected the movie more if they were a thruple. If this went like into cabaret territory where mm-hmm. they're not really sure how they feel about each other. And that would have been fine too, but it's like we just need some framework for some weirdness to be going on and then that's it. Every time this movie starts to come up with an idea of how to explain the dynamics of this group, mm-hmm. it pulls the rug out from under you. Yeah. And so it's just a mess. All that to say, number one, this is not the movie I expected it to be at all. Yes. Even though I did know like the 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 sort of background and the cultural touchstone of the movie was not reflective of the movie as a whole. I did know that much, but I didn't know how weird it was gonna be. <laughs> yeah. So I knew what her choice was. I knew she had to choose between her children. I've known that forever. So uh, what I didn't know is exactly what the circumstances around it was. I, I knew that she had to decide between which one of her children was going to live. Um, but the way it's all presented is just not artful at all. Um, and it almost makes it an afterthought. Well, it's cheapened. It feels cheapened. And I, boy, I... I... I think it gets into the novel itself. I think the novel is framed so poorly. I appreciate the fact that she is not Jewish. I actually think that makes it an interesting, compelling story, especially when you're going to explore this relationship of these people. Sure. And that's going to be the main thrust of your story. Mm -hmm. To have it be even more complicated for her and where she came from in sure. relation to, to what was going on in Germany, I think really helps the story. Yeah, I think I think it does make it more complicated. And also like her behaviors, like because at one point, like she pretends that, no, I've always been on your side because she's trying to get out. She's trying to save herself. And she realizes she has an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, she's got an opportunity. But it's also why she feels such immense guilt. Yep. Well, it's it's a reason why she feels guilt there's so many mm-hmm. and uh, th- that's not to shame her she was in an impossible situation <laughs> yeah it's just that again because the tonal shift is so abrupt into what winds up being a soap opera mm-hmm. and not like a nuanced thoughtful balance of romantic choice because if we want to you know make that title make sense mm-hmm. it should be about she now has to choose between these two people she loves. Yeah, like it should have come down to her. Like there, it's almost like it would have been better if that whole thing. She's just so indecisive. She can't make a decision. Um, like if she's been moving around a lot, if she, you know, like oh, which place would you like? Oh, I don't. I she doesn't have a favorite restaurant. She doesn't have a favorite anything because she doesn't want to choose. Like she's just a person who can no longer make choice. Yes. And including between men or, or any partners. And it it would have, I we we talked about this a little bit after we watched it. That I feel like if they would have presented the flashbacks in a more, I don't want to say deceptive way, but in a way where she's telling Stingo one thing. Like, oh yeah, I had a husband and I had children, um, but they've they've passed. And then we start to see like her husband was killed or she knows that her daughter, you know, her daughter was taken and, and then her, her daughter passed. And then 
like just to like what actually happened versus like what she tells people like, oh, I worked as a secretary for a while. And then we see that she worked as a secretary in the concentration camp, like stuff like that would have made so much more sense. And then if it became a thing where, like you said, there's her choosing between the men, if then it becomes like she gets confronted by like, why can't you make a choice? She's like, I made one choice and it ruined it was like, and, and it cost me everything or, 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 or like, and I lost everything or yeah. something. And I was like, and I, I, I can never, I'll never make a choice again. And then we see it and we see her explain, this is what really happened to me. That would give it so much. I mean, it, it has the most weight it could possibly have. I mean, you can't add more weight to it, but it would be a more loving story for Sophie. The emotional weight that it's supposed to pack mm-hmm. would not feel like just an abrupt, sudden moment. Yes. That's superfluous to the movie. Mm-hmm. The way they info dump her experience in the camp. Yeah. It just happened. They just tell you all at once. So frustrating <laughs> because it earns none of the weight of what the character's going through. The, the edit of this movie is just bizarre mm-hmm. when you are dealing with, you're dealing with a romance and a whodunit. Kinda, yeah. I mean, you know, and the other thing that we, that we miss here too that would help Nathan's character not feel so ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the page would be if that we're also seeing what she's told him which conflicts with what she's told Stingo. Mm-hmm. And that's also what starts to lead into him getting more upset. And it, you know, and he's Thank already you. a little volatile. And now he's realizing she's lying to her. And what else is she lying about? And it justifies so much more if you restructure it that way. Mm-hmm. Somebody could remake this story and do a really good job with it. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Because. For all its faults, the core of it is very, very good. Yes. It's just that somewhere along the way in this process, it got so mixed up and convoluted and really only became about the acting of it Mm -hmm. and the moment of it. And my God, the moments are so incredibly impressive, Mm -hmm. but they don't amount to a whole lot in the end. Well, the budget for this film was $12 million. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive for a movie that seems like it's on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. But it was a big deal of a novel. It made about $30 million globally. Okay, pretty good. It's one of those primo Oscar bait type movies that's going to come out late in the year. Sure. Producer Alan J. Pacula bought the rights for the novel after seeing the galley proofs of it. It hadn't even been published. Oh. That's not that uncommon. It's not, but it's just interesting. And the film was co-invested by Keith Barish, a Florida real estate developer who wanted to get into the film industry. Okay. So Pacula actually didn't expect to find any full funding until the script was completed. But all of a sudden, Incorporated Television Company got interested. So when you see the opening of this movie, it's not Orion and Universal were both interested. Mm-hmm. which are much bigger deals. But right. ITC was looking for a splash to make it in like sort of more substantial things. Yeah. 
And so they ponied up the money before anybody else could get a chance to fund the movie. And they like they, you know, at some point the money had to get increased. ITC was like, sure, fine, whatever it takes. That's cool. So it's very interesting. They 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 sort of went in and was like, nope, we're making this one. We're we're getting our shot here, <laughs> which it paid off for them pretty well. It seems like. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about our writing, which we're not the biggest fans of. Mm-mm. The novel was written by William Styron. He also wrote The Confessions of Nat Turner, which again is another piece of historical fiction, though it's based around I think more true events than this one. Okay. Um, and almost all of his books are historical fiction. Hmm. Our screenplay writer is Alan J. Pacula. We just talked about him as the producer. We're going to talk about him some more. Okay. This is Pacula's first screenplay. He is mostly known as a director and producer. However, after this, he wrote Presumed Innocent and The Pelican Brief. Oh, okay. What do we think of Pacula's writing of this movie, despite the fact that we've already kind of trashed it? It's crap. It's not good. It's it's actively bad. It's just, again, it seems bound and determined to somehow sabotage the emotional weight of the story at every given moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because they think they need to soften the blow. Mm-hmm. To like kind of try to pull the punch because they don't want the audience to be devastated too quickly, but it's it's a mistake. It's the wrong move, um, and it just doesn't work. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's just not good. It's not good, and it's it doesn't like again. Like I've talked about a way that I feel like they could still present the same story, but in a more art, a better way, and it's just. Like, that's the problem. Like, the idea, great. The emotional weight, it's there. But you just didn't do anything with it, so it sucks. It was supposed to originally be released for a Christmas 1980 or fall 1981 release. It Mm -hmm. took him that long to get the script done, though. Mm. And there is a disclaimer at the end of this film that states that there is only one character in this film that is not fictitious. That is Rudolf Hess. The Auschwitz Commandant. Okay. So every figure in this is not a real person. Not based on a real person. Nothing. I mean, that doesn't bother me. I mean, that's essentially historical fiction. Yeah. It's just, again, why? The Rudolf Hess touch is also, like, way too much. Um, I think, I, I think that's probably to help, like, ground it in some reality. It is, but it also, it it takes the story to a level it doesn't really need to get to. Mm-hmm. Like, it could be some no-name officer yeah. that she's forced to work under instead of one of the main architects of the massacres at Auschwitz. Well, I mean, I think it probably just, again, it, it grounds it a little bit. And also, some people are really going to recognize that name. Oh, absolutely. Like, that... That's obviously the point that I'm sure the novel did too. Mm -hmm. To me, it's just, it's so taking you out of it. Like she can meet Hess as part of it, but for him to suddenly be a main player in the film, to me feels like a step too far Mm. for the story you're telling. It didn't really bother me, but again, like I didn't completely know who that was. That's fair. Diana doesn't know shit about history. 
Yeah, it's fair. It's it's one of those things that if you know who Hess is, who is like he's one of the top tier awful Nazis of Nazi history, sure. then you're like, really? I, it, it's it's that thing of it, they're constantly escalating it way higher to like such a high drama with a capital D when they really don't need to. Because sure. the story's got enough going on already. I mean, you just say a woman has to choose between which of her children is going to live, and the stakes are really high. You don't need any of the rest of the story. Mm. I mean, you probably need the understanding of how she got there and the sort of backs, the mystery of her her father and the political stuff with that does pack a punch. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, she's not who she says she is. And there's this like sort of back and forth of understanding. But there's a lot of that sequence that can just get cut out. Because the other thing about this movie is it's two and a half fucking hours. And there's no reason it needs to be that long. I don't think so. And I think if you make the crux that choice and it bleeding into this this emotional weight later on, Mm -hmm. that's the story. You don't need a whole lot of deep exploration later. Well, and then it's kind of like, because, you know, we knew it was coming. And that's, again, that's fine. But then it gives it more weight that like, of course, this would, I mean, this would, this would, of course, change someone's life. It, it, the trauma would be undeniable and, and just unbearable. But how does that manifest? What does that look like? On its own. I I knew the scene was coming and it still was gut-wrenching to watch. Sure. But by the end of the film, it is a scene. Yes. That impacted me and not a movie. Yes. And there are ways to do it where that scene suddenly transforms the whole movie. Yep. And well, that's the scene that. that makes the movie. And they miss that entirely. <laughs> yes, they do. Uh well, let's talk about our director. Oh, it's Alan J. Pacula. Okay. Now he he's done a lot, and he's done a lot of good. So we won't we won't fault him too much because his directing credits are far more known than his writing credits. Before this, he actually produced the '62 To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, okay. So he was a producer before he did any of that. Then directed the Sterile Cuckoo, Clute, The Parallax View, All the President's Men. Comes a Horseman and Starting Over. After this, Dream Lover, Orphans, Presumed Innocent, The Pelican Brief, and The Devil's Own. Okay. What do we think of the directing of this movie? Well, okay. It's kind of hard to know what is. Like, I I think he did the biggest favor he could have, and he has the best possible people in his movie. He does do that. And then he just kind of lets it go. I I just, I don't know that he made choices that elevated anything. Like the choice to have Meryl staring at us like like she's in portrait while she's retelling this story. It it doesn't make any sense. It's so out of place. I didn't hate it in the moment. I didn't hate it because I liked that we were finally getting to like, What's going on? <laughs> what's what's your deal? <laughs> Hi, weird sad lady. What the fuck? What's your damage? Oh, here it is. Thank you. <laughs> like, that's that's fine. I mean, part of it's just that it's such a beautiful shot. <laughs> it 
it is. I mean, it, it is a beautiful shot, but like, what is she doing in them? Like, where's the reality behind that? Is she sitting for a portrait? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, it's I, like, what are we doing? I bought into the fact that she's looking out the window and we trained the camera on her and she like, to me, uh, thinking as an actor, it's just like, oh, you're staring off into the distance remembering this, but the camera is viewing you as though you're talking directly to them. It's a little too gimmicky to really exactly. work. Exactly. It, it's, okay, here's the thing with gimmicks. You have to use them more or not at all. Like, you can't use a gimmick once like that in this type of movie. You could have had her staring into the mirror, into different things, and then all of a sudden that that shot makes so much sense. Sure. And then, you know... You add to it the composition of she looks like a fucking Renaissance painting. <laughs> sure. Which would have been great if there had been a line about, oh, what 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 beauty you have or something like that. Uh, well, I, and yeah, had Nathan said that and then you hear it in the camps. Yeah. Like, well, and it's like, just like, oh, <laughs> well, no, but like if someone had told her that as a compliment, but then, you know, Hess is the one who's like, you do you have such an Aryan beauty like. Yeah, she is a gorgeous woman and she is super pale. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would have been a wonderful juxtaposition. And then yeah, it could have been she's staring, you know, maybe they're at a museum staring at paintings and they oh, you look just as beautiful as them. And it, there were just ways to carry it through and they didn't do it. The script's so wrong for the movie already yes. that you know, the the best you could hope for was just wind it up and let these actors kind of go for it. Mm-hmm. And somehow they kind of make it watchable, even though it's bizarre. Because mm-hmm. we'll get there with the cast and we're we're all for the cast of this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think you're I think where you're absolutely right is he doesn't make a lot of choices and that's to his credit. But when he does make a choice, it doesn't seem to fit the point. <laughs> It doesn't it doesn't make the actual point that he's trying to make with. Yeah. And that's frustrating. It is. Especially because we have a who could have been better. Ooh, okay. And I think this who could have been better is fascinating. Okay. Mike Nichols and Milos Forman. Oh, okay. Talked about directing in New York and in Europe, respectively. Mm, Okay. Nichols would have filmed the New York scenes. Mm Mm-hmm. And Foreman would have done the European scenes, the filming in Eastern Europe for the camp sequences. That would have been interesting. Having two different directors do that would leave an interesting mark. Sure. We talked about Foreman with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah. And that sort of plainness and rigidness, but then him also having to flee. Mm-hmm. Having experienced Eastern Europe during this period. Mm-hmm. where they're talking about and then also fleeing another authoritarian government. Yep. And then Mike Nichols with the stage and the drama of it all. His version of Virginia Woolf is one of the greatest things I've ever seen on film. Mm-hmm. And like he knows how to make high how to make a stagey drama, which is kind of what this is, mm-hmm. work on screen. Yeah. Man, that's a better choice and a fascinating idea. I I like that a lot. The production decided, well, we have Pacula. He can he can direct and he can write. So they decided to keep the cost down and just have him do it instead. 
I understand that. I don't like it, but I understand. But I just think, wow, what could have been there? That would have been interesting to watch. It wouldn't fix the script problems, though. That's the only no. thing. Um, I think the visual choices would have made a lot more sense. Yeah. I will give them that. All right. Let's get to it. Let's talk about what we're really here for, which is this cast. Yes. Because holy shit, are they doing the most acting and yet the best acting? <laughs> yes, they are. Pacula originally wanted completely unknown actors for the roles, I which makes that. a ton of sense. The studio convinced him, though, that he had to have at least one, possibly more stars for box office appeal. I, again, I again, I understand that. Uh, especially with the way this was financed, I think the ITC thing is important to the sh to how this movie kind of. I think there's some production interference going on here with Maybe. this company being like, "We're banking a lot on this movie. Don't fuck it up." Like that, that's fair. And that didn't leave them a lot of room for thinking through how they could really be creative with this story. Mm -hmm. uh, the rehearsals took about three weeks. The actors were allowed to experiment with their character arcs and the script a bit, mm -hmm. which I think shows in the performance. Um, I Maybe a bit. I feel like the rawest, deepest moments that we get are not scripted. Maybe. Well, let's talk about Meryl fucking Streep as Sophie. Should I give her credits? No. No. We've talked about this bitch before. We talked about her in Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer versus Kramer. She's done so much. This is still relatively early for her, though she was, at this point, a star. Sure. The year before, she did The French Lieutenant's Woman, so after, after the Kramer versus Kramer and that, she's officially in like movie star territory when this movie comes out. Sure. God damn. She's... Phenomenal. I mean, her accent, she has several accents throughout this thing. They're all great, at least, you know, to my ear. And she just, she, she becomes ragdoll-like, which is also just amazing. And she's just so captivating. She just is. You want to watch what she's going to do. Meryl is now such an icon that it's hard to envision her melting into a role. Mm-hmm. And yet she does it almost every time. She does. Like, it's you're like, you're so recognizable at this point. How do you fucking do it? <laughs> I mean, you're who people imitate in order to perform. She just, she has it. She's a, she's a acting prodigy. And she does the work. And I think the fascinating thing about this is the way that it's written, this character can so easily be some type of sad, romance novel caricature yep and she doesn't she refuses to stoop to that yeah she absolutely refuses and the movie works because of that i'm not saying it works well mm -hmm. but it does hold together enough for you to care about sophie because <laughs> mm -hmm. sophie is so flighty and you're like boy i don't know about you and then, you know, but every time it's always grounded in like, she has been through hell. And even when you don't know what hell she's been through, you still get it. Yes. Like, that's, I think, the most impressive thing is that early on, you still understand why she's willing to put up with Nathan, why she's willing to, to be so emotional and vulnerable with people. Like, you get all of it. 
before you even know what actually happened to her. Mm. So that's, that's just Meryl. It's fucking Meryl. Goddamn. She reportedly begged Pacula for the role literally on her hands and knees at one point. Mm-hmm. She had already gone to him and petitioned for the role before Pacula had finished the screenplay. She had been talking to him as early as 1979. Oh, wow. So, like, right after Kramer versus Kramer, she's like, I want this role. Give me this role. Which is just like, okay, Meryl. Like, she she saw something in the character that she's like, I need to do this. Mm-hmm. She still had to beat out several people. We'll talk about the who could have been betters here in a moment. Pacula did finally offer her the role in about 1980, but she went to go film The French Lieutenant's Woman because she wouldn't formally accept until he finished writing his movie. So until the script was done, she wasn't going to officially accept. She was like, I want it, but it better be done. Yep. And I better be able to see it. Because I think also she was like, you will not write Sophie in a way that will disrespect her. Well, that's good. That's not officially anywhere, but I've got to believe that was her thinking there. Was like, I want this role, but I want it the right way. Mm -hmm. So hopefully Meryl's the reason why this didn't go further off the rails than it could have. Now here's our who could have been betters. Novelist William Styron wanted Ursula Andress, the original Bond girl, to play Sophie. Mm, Okay. We also had then budding star Martha Keller. Martha spelled with an E. She was a German actress who had a run in Marathon Man and Bobby Deerfield, just kind of a Kind of a name in the mid-70s. She was also then dating Al Pacino. Hmm. We have Hannah Skygala. She was a leading lady of the new German cinema movement, mm-hmm. um, including the classic The Marriage of Maria von Braun, which you're going to notice that a lot of people here are German or East European actresses. Okay. So I think Pacula's thinking was, I'm going to do unknowns, and Sophie is going to be someone who is an incredible talent, but is not in Hollywood Mm -hmm. and somebody who is from that area that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And the person who Meryl was up against directly in the final choice for the role was Magda Vasaryova. She's a Czech actress who has been in some notable international films and was in like kind of a Czech new wave movement, but like nothing in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So it would have been a complete unknown out of nowhere. She was directly up against Streep for the role. Mm-hmm. And Meryl just stuck to her guns on it. As to Hollywood actresses that were considered or wanted the role, Sally Field was incredibly interested, but she assumed, quote, she didn't stand a chance, unquote. Mm-hmm. Which, I do love Sally Field, but imagining Sally Field somehow diving into the Polish-German... <laughs> Eastern European character study. Mm-hmm. I, I think she might have had a point there. <laughs> yeah, that seems fair. This might not be your lane. Now, here's an interesting one. Natalie Wood. Hmm. Natalie Wood was considered Natalie Wood, a Russian emigre. Fair. I, I didn't think about that until now, but I was like, oh, yeah, she was actually like Russian or Eastern European. She just changed her film name. Mm-hmm. And finally, w- would it be... An early 80s movie if Barbara didn't get her name in the mix? Uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> Can you fucking imagine Barbara Streisand in this movie? It would have been so awful. 
Barbara Streisand and Kevin Klein. Just think about that. Kevin there trying to be professional, but you know, being the 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 stagey controlled version of Robin Williams. He would have quit. He would. Have. He would like that, or he would have like you know snapped her into shape because like <sighs> he would not have. I I can't imagine he would have put up with that. I don't know. We'll we'll get into him in a minute because uh, I don't know if he had the cachet to pull that off. Hmm. We're all better off that Meryl got this role. I think she's fabulous. She's incredible. Uh, she learned not only a Polish accent, but also learned to speak German and Polish mm. for the specific line she delivers in the movie. So she she actually tried to learn the language and the language structure so she wouldn't just be reciting lines. Um, she wanted to gain the authentic voice of a Polish refugee. One of the assistants on set spoke fluent Polish. And so she worked directly with them to develop her accent. I mean, that just speaks to her dedication to her craft. And that's why she is so good. Mm -hmm. She does the work. Pacula also hired an Auschwitz survivor as a consultant on the film. Mm. And the other actors in that sequence at Auschwitz and in Poland spoke in Polish or German. Those are actual Polish and German actors. When you look down the cast lists, you see a whole bunch of people that are not Hollywood actors. Hmm. So they actually used people from in and around those areas to film those scenes, which is like awesome. It adds that layer. Those scenes are incredibly well done. Yes, they are. Because they feel real. Yes. And like that's one of the few saving graces of the movie. It's just so bizarre that when we come back out of the flashback, it's less real than the flashback was. Mm -hmm. I don't know. All right, let's talk about the other guy, a man making his film debut. I don't know how that's possible. Kevin Klein as Nathan. He is one of my great loves of my life. We have not talked about Kevin Klein on this show before. I mean, not as an actor. I've just talked about how much I love. I know, right? Mm Mm-hmm. After this, he is in The Pirates of Penzance, The Big Chill, Silverado, Cry Freedom, A Fish Called Wanda, Soap Dish, Grand Canyon, Chaplin, Dave, French Kiss, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Fierce Creatures, The Ice Storm, In and Out, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Wild Wild West, The Road to El Dorado, The Anniversary Party, Life as a House, The Emperor's Club, De Lovely, The Pink Panther from 2006, Prairie Home Companion, As You Like It, Definitely Maybe, The Conspirator, No Strings Attached, Darling Companion, The Last of Robin Hood, Beauty and the Beast from 2017, and Bob's Burgers. He's just, I love him so much. I mean, he he is brilliant. He is Kevin Kleining it up a little in this movie. But to be fair, they gave him nothing to work with. Uh, yeah, they didn't give him a whole lot. They clearly didn't give him any direction. So he did, he did that. And you know what? He's great. What's fascinating are, are the moments when he becomes menacing because we're not used to that from Kevin Klein. Mm-hmm. He's almost a, a refined sort of comic genius, except for like, you know, movies like The Ice Storm or The Anniversary Party where it's like, no, 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 he's he's doing his real dramatic acting here. Mm-hmm. He's usually doing one or the other, but rarely do you see him being this like unstable, evil motherfucker. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. he pulls it off and he's so... It's interesting that in the same year that Robin Williams does Garp, mm-hmm. where you're seeing him temper his Robin Williamsness, yeah, Kevin Klein's doing like the full-on bonkers version of his thing, yeah, which like 
those two have a remarkably similar tenor as actors. The difference is Kevin Klein is much more of a technical actor actor mm-hmm. than Robin ever was. Yes. <laughs> not that Robin's bad and, and not that Robin can't do that, mm-hmm. but that's just not what he, that's not his thing. <laughs> no. But yeah, they do have a very similar style when they go wacky. Mm-hmm. It's very similar, and they both do have. You're right. They like they do have a very similar tone. They have a similar energy about them. Yes. Well, you know what it is. It's when they go wacky. They're they're not threatening. It's it's very clown like, mm-hmm. in, in the way that clown. If you are a properly trained clown, you would not scare children. Yep. Yeah, like that's that's what I mean by that. Like it's not scary. You're just like, ooh, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden on a dime, he turns it and it's just like, oh, shit. Oh, no. Yeah. I think he rides the line well enough. The movie, while being rooted in some really stupid ideas about mental illness. Of course. Because it was 1982. This is one of those genuine, I think they were trying to portray it sympathetically. Yeah. It's just that nobody understood what was going on with a character like this. Sure. However... They ground it with the other actors in he is sick and he needs help. Yes. And he portrays it with the nuance of he is incredibly dangerous, but he is also very clearly unstable. And if he can be restrained a little bit, yeah, you get the, the feeling that it's like, it's not just that he's violent because he's violent. No. It's that he is clearly unstable. And that is a nuance that it takes a good actor to pull off, mm-hmm. which he does. You know, he's charming as hell. He's fascinating. I just, there's so little for him to actually chew on here that it's frustrating because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of a waste. It is. He's, he's too hammy and it's not his fault. <laughs> it, it just makes me want to go watch French Kiss again, which is the best romantic comedy of all time. Having appeared in the stage production of The Pirates of Panzance, his debut film was supposed to be the film version of that. Oh, okay. But due to post-production delays of that film, it got released in 1983, so this movie came out first, making it his debut. Oh, well, that's kind of fun. Again, I said it in the last one. We have gotten a lot of debuts this year. It's like everybody showed up. And Klein had been doing theater for like a decade and a half before this. Like, he's... He'd been doing theater for so long. Mm-hmm. The Pirates of Penzance revival in the 80s was a, a big stinking deal. And Pacula actually saw him on Broadway, which is what made him approach him for this role. Oh, that's cool. This performance also led John Cleese to approach Kevin Klein for his film, A Fish Called Wanda, mm-hmm. which is the movie I think about when I think about Kevin Klein. All right. Who could have been better? No one. But okay. Because there are names. Of course there are. Michael York. Okay, I I see that. I understand. Where's the menace, though? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Al Pacino. No. This is opposite his partner, Martha Keller. If this was made in, like, the early to mid-70s? Sure. Yes. I can see it. it. We are starting to head into second stage Pacino by this point. (laughs) Second stage Pacino. We're we're headed into wild-eyed Pacino territory. It's just like, he, he flipped... His voice changed too. His when his voice got gruff, mm-hmm. the whole thing flipped for him. That's fair. Like it's not his fault. It's just like 
the roles he was going to get completely changed <laughs> once he switched into that hoo thing. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman. He could have done it, but I wouldn't have liked it. There wouldn't have ever been the charm because Dustin Hoffman is never charming. You can't do it all, Dustin. Go away. No. And here's one that I actually don't hate. Robert De Niro. Hmm. Yeah, no, I get that. That makes sense. De Niro makes a lot of sense. Now, it would have been less whimsical at times, although De Niro has done that. Like, I've seen him do kind of whimsical and flighty. Mm-hmm. And it's a turn that would really, it would be so fascinating to watch him in this role. Mm-hmm. However, I will also say that Kevin Klein does a better job with a shit script than De Niro would have done. Agreed. De Niro's best performances require a script that's on par with his capabilities. They really do. Because if he doesn't have a lot to work with, he doesn't have a whole lot he can give to it. Yeah. Because of kind of how methody and how like small he likes to work. So we got the best choice here. Yes. And he debuted and it made him an instant movie star. Kevin fucking Klein. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, finally, we have a sneaky addition to maybe one of the best performances in the whole movie. Mm. It's Peter McNichol playing Stingo. Yeah. Before this, he was in a movie called Dragon Slayer. After this, he's in Fairy Tale Theater because we're contractually obligated to mention it. And and which episode was he in? Oh, I don't know. David, I'm not looking that up. You decide. I'm, I'm doing it right now. Ghostbusters 2, Adam's Family Values, Radioland Murders, Bean, Chicago Hope, Baby Geniuses, Allie McBeal, Numbers, Battleship, and Veep. He has clearly made his way in TV these days. Wow, he's good in this movie. I found him more captivating at times than I found Meryl. And that's saying a lot. Mm. Oh, he was in the episode of season three called The Boy Who Left Home to Find Out About the Shivers. That is the episode that also features Christopher Lee and David Warner. Well, good for him. It's just an important thing we have to know. How do you feel about him in this movie? He's great. He's so earnest. He's great opposite Meryl, but also Kevin. And he's like, he's very non-threatening. The way that he is earnest without being stupid as well. Mm -hmm. Everybody in this movie has these moments where they feel ridiculous, including Sophie. Mm -hmm. Because of the way it's written. He somehow overcomes all of it. And I know part of that's the role he's in. Yes. He's the lens through which we're watching all this weirdness. But he still grounds himself as an actor in that. Mm -hmm. And while they are giving bonkers off the wall performances, he comes in with that small, subtle approach the whole time. Which, like, he's known for being the shrill neurotic guy. (laughs) So to watch him in this and be like, wow this is one of those wow i didn't know you had this in you Mm -hmm. because everything i've seen you in is like comedy thing which is totally a good wheelhouse and it makes sense for who you are as an actor but it's just like dude you have a whole nother layer there yeah and he to me while meryl is the star and like the most amazing bright spot to watch in the movie he is the thing that holds the fucking movie together his performance, he to is. me, keeps it from flying off the rails completely. He's very grounded, and that is very, very necessary. And to do that against two giant powerhouse performers and also not get overshadowed by them? Damn. Mm-hmm. Damn, sir. You are awesome in this movie. 
Yes. Pacula stated in an article that McNichol, quote, tried unsuccessfully to develop the voice of an older and wiser Stingo mm-hmm. for the narration. So they hired another narrator who will be mentioned in the Arpons. Okay. And a couple of who could have been betters for this role, Timothy Hutton. Mm, okay. Not a bad choice. And Michael O'Keefe, Danny Noonan from Caddyshack. Okay. <laughs> that poor guy. Apparently, he's done a whole lot of like pretty normal, like not not anything big, but he does more like just sort of common drama type roles. And the thing everyone will remember him for is being Danny, mm. the caddy in Caddyshack. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it for our main cast. It really is. But we do have a couple of our puns. Okay. We have Josh Mostel playing Morris Fink. This, of course, is the son of Zero Mostel. Mm-hmm. He played King Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar and Barry, one of the wimpy couple in City Slickers. <laughs> we have Robin Bartlett playing Lillian Grossman. She played Barbara, one of the sisters in Moonstruck. Mm. Gunter Maria Halmer plays Rudolf Hess. He was Colin Bach in Gandhi. Oh, okay. And he would play Hess again in the film War and Remembrance. Interesting. Okay. Joseph Summer is the narrator that they hired because Peter McNichol couldn't get the older voice. He was Mr. Ducksworth in The Mighty Ducks. Oh, okay. And finally, playing one of the reporters, Tobin Bell. Jigsaw's back again. (laughs) In one of his extra roles. Wow. We talked about debuts. The most fascinating one is that Tobin Bell got his start as an extra in two movies we've talked about. <laughs> Fucking horror legend Tobin Bell. Mm-hmm. And that is it for our cast. So we will move to awards. Award. This film was nominated for five Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Best cinematography. Okay. Best costume design. Okay. Best original score from Marvin Hamlish. Okay. It's a very good score. I'll agree with that one. Mm-hmm. Best actress Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Duh. And finally, best adapted screenplay for Alan J. Pacula. Well, no. Oh, the bar is on the floor. What? Why? <laughs> we could probably dig in here. There are so many other movies that it could have been nominated for adapted screenplay this year. Mm-hmm. So many. Oh, yeah. How did this movie? <laughs> yeah. You could put it for best picture. I don't care. Just mm-hmm. not that. Ugh. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's get into some pieces of trivia. Trivia. Rudolf Hess had five different children. However, none of them were ever named Emmy or Iphigenie. <laughs> okay. As they're named in this film. Mm. Costume designer Albert Wolski and Meryl's hair and makeup artist J. Roy Helland worked on her character design well before rehearsals ever started. They created dresses from the fabrics of recut vintage garments. Hmm, okay, cool. Her look is very impeccable. The costume design is outstanding. It feels very real mm-hmm. and very in that moment. And all her floral patterns are fascinating. The majority of filming took place in New York, especially in and around Brooklyn. Uh, the home interiors were filmed in Flatbush with the exterior painted pink to match the novel. Okay. Once the Brooklyn scenes were completed, they moved to Zagreb, Yugoslavia, a place we talked about with Fiddler on the Roof, Hmm. 
to film two and a half weeks of the flashback sequences. Originally, they wanted to film in Poland, which is where the majority of the concentration camps were, including Auschwitz, but political unrest prevented them from filming there. Mm. Poland and a lot of these places were under some massive issues in the Soviet Union. Yep. So the production team spent three weeks in the fall of 1981 researching Poland, including Krakow, Katowice, Warsaw, and Auschwitz. They then looked to try filming in neighboring Czechoslovakia. But the unrest had spread so far that they were worried it was too close to Poland. Mm. So they went to the one Soviet republic that loves a film because Tito loved Hollywood, Yugoslavia. Mm. It's just my favorite thing ever. All the Soviet dictators, American culture is terrible and horrible. Tito, come make your movie here. All right, man. Okay. Good for you. And Streep completed the final scene, her choice, in one take, refusing to do any more takes because it was too painful and emotionally draining. Um, She was a mother at that point, so it doubly impacted her as an actress. Mm. She later appeared on Oprah, and they played the clip. And during it, she became visibly uncomfortable on camera. Mm. When they cut back from the clip, she revealed that it was such a painful scene to make, she had never, ever watched it before that moment. Mm, yeah, I get, I, that makes complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to ratings. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, are we going to do Miracle Cures? Merc Miracle Cures? We could also go radios. Let's, let's go with radios. Ooh, Emmy's, Emmy's radio in the house. Okay. Boy, howdy. I'm going to. I'm going to. The performances are so incredibly strong. Yes. And they do their damnedest to hold it together. But even then, it's still so jarring to where it bounces in between. Mm-hmm. It's not an unwatchable movie. And it's competently made. So it's not like it's like way down the rung. Mm-hmm. But the... The story choices just make it such a weird watch that by the end of it, you're like, well, those couple of scenes were amazing and everybody was doing a great job. But what the fuck? Yeah. I'm going to give it I'm going to give it two radios. Yeah. The writing is really, really. Bad. I'm going to go two and a half. OK. Um, because, yeah, the performances are really that good. And it, it's it's warranted. It really, truly is. But, yeah, it's just the way the story is presented. Just really. It doesn't. It doesn't do anything for like the actual, like for the actual story. It doesn't elevate it. It doesn't present it in a way that like honors that type of pain that people truly did have to go through. So like, I yeah, it's just like, meh. yeah. <laughs> well, we are rounding the bend now to our final film. Oh. In the Oscars '82 series. What What's our last movie? Another abrupt tonal shift. Okay. We're going to a courtroom, but we're going to a courtroom with two nasty, grind-in-the-dirt lawyers. Oh, that sounds like fun. We're going to watch The Verdict. The Verdict, okay. This movie has been on my radar for a long time, specifically because certain playwright, who I had a fondness for and studied a lot, wrote the screenplay. Mm Mm-hmm. And because I have heard that this is one of the movies that deserved so much more credit than it ever got. So I am, I have been wanting to watch this movie for a long time. Hmm. Gonna be interesting. 
I hope it holds up to my hype. Yeah? Hmm. Well, that'll be interesting. So until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.